Welcome to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I'm your host, James Hauser, and these are my footnotes for the Paraguayan War series. Yeah, this is a short episode that is meant to be listened to after you have finished the Paraguayan War Parts 1-5 through 5 and all associated short rounds. It's going to be completely incomprehensible if you haven't. Uh, this is a new thing I'm going to be trying to do from here on out. Just a quick no-frills discussion to wrap up the series, talk about my sources, modern historical and ideological interpretations of the war, some bits I left out or glossed over, and some other musings about the conflict. Like the last section, this is basically just Unfiltered Soldiers, <laughs> Paraguay more edition. Again, this is the first time that I've done one of these. For the first few series, I did introductions, but I don't think those worked out that well. After all, it doesn't make a lot of sense to discuss sources and interpretations if you guys haven't heard the story yet. But I also wanted to add a bit more casual chat about this conflict. Like I said, something more akin to an Unfiltered Soldiers episode, though I haven't done one of those in quite some time. So what I'm going to be doing today... First, I'm going to talk about the historiography and my sources for this war. I'm going to talk about historical interpretations of this war, including traditional views, revisionist views, even Marxist views, basically how historians have looked back on this war. Then I will discuss the books I use and where you can find further reading if you want. Not easy for this one, guys. Then we're going to go to the cutting room floor, things I could have talked about more, interesting tidbits I didn't go into, etc. Then I'll have some summing up thoughts, and that'll be the more rambly section where I pratter on about military tactics and technology and leadership and that sort of thing. This is your outtakes episode, your cut content, your addendum. You don't have to listen to this. It's not essential listening for the Paraguayan War, but, you know, Christmas present. I still hope you enjoy it. If you hate it, let me know, and I might not do it again. I am recording this from my family basement because I'm at home for the holidays, so the sound quality might be a little iffy, but hopefully I can fix that. But without further ado, this is not just history, this is military history. The podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. Oops, I did let one F-bomb slip in part five. You probably caught that. It's PG-13, I get one free F-bomb per episode, as long as it's not an explicitly sexual F-bomb. So Lopez can F his entire country, but he can't F Eliza Lynch. Hope that clears things up. Next, what you're about to, you're about to hear my sources, so you know where I'm getting my information. Finally, if I mess up, it's my fault, not anyone else's. What you've heard over the last few months was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. Okay, part one, historiography. That is, historiography, if you don't know, is essentially the history of the history. People but write histories about something immediately after it happens, and that history and that interpretation evolves over time. I talk about this with every single one of my big series. I talk about this with some of the um, episodes I do. One of the big things I talked about with the Tudorberg Forest episode, Give Me Back My Legions, was how historical views on Arminius, the Germanic leader, changed over time. So how is it changed by the Paraguayan War over time? People were writing about the Paraguayan War from the moment it began. They had all sorts of opinions. Uh, most of the early writings that weren't done by Paraguayans held to the traditional view, the traditional, um, the traditional interpretation of the Allies as righteous crusaders against a tropical despotism ruled by a madman, of civilization against barbarism, of progress against an irrational dictatorship. There was not a lot of room for nuance in this view. You'll see a lot of older works that still have this extremely simplistic view of the conflict, of crazy brainwashed Paraguay with its evil leader and his wicked queen versus the noble vanguard of democracy and progress. This was the version of the story that Brazil and Argentina 
and the Paraguayan liberals believed in. Now, the Paraguayans obviously didn't hold this viewpoint. Most of them believed that the war had been fought for the interests of small nations against superpowers, for their dignity and honor as a nation, for independence or death. There was also not a lot of room for nuance in this view, which is the Paraguayan nationalist view that is still the main view in Paraguay. And it's a compelling viewpoint. It has a lot of drama and romance and tragedy to it. That's why it still um, honestly has a lot of currency with even some outside commentators. Martin McMahon, the American diplomat, bought into the Paraguayan nationalist view of the war. Because he saw he identified it a lot with the Irish nationalist cause. Uh, we discussed that viewpoint a lot in the last episode of this series. What some Latin American historians still refer to the Paraguayan nationalist view of the war as the lost cause mythos, making a direct comparison with how many Southerners still view the American Civil War. So there are people who draw parallels between the, the, the Confederacy lost cause and the Paraguay lost cause, and they occurred in a very similar time period, as after all, the Paraguayan War was starting just as the American Civil War was ending. But by the 1960s and 1970s, many historians, especially in Latin America, began to interpret the war very differently. The revisionist interpretation of the Paraguayan War was heavily influenced by the Cold War, by American and Western interference in Latin America like Operation Condor, and by international movements like communism and third worldism. So there are three main elements to this revisionist interpretation of the Paraguayan War. It's not the traditional view where the Allies were the good guys. It's not the Paraguayan nationalist view where Paraguay was the good guy. Unvarnished, you know, hurrah for Paraguay, good guy. This is a different view. This is the revisionist view. The first element of this view is looking at the war through a Marxist perspective. The Paraguayan War as a byproduct of capitalism. In this interpretation, as it goes... Dr. Francia built a proto-Marxist state in South America, a state that continued imperfectly under Los Lopez. Paraguay was self-sufficient, modernizing, prosperous, and egalitarian, but it also refused to submit to the free market and refused to open its doors to international trade. Paraguay was refusing to bow down to international finance and capital, and this made them the target of the banks, and the, especially the, the British banks. Because this is where the second element of the revisionist interpretation comes in. Anti-British bias. Britain was the great capitalist power of the 19th century, the center of global naval dominance and the baking industry and the Industrial Revolution. And yes, Britain, Britain did start several wars in the 19th century to open new markets for their manufactured goods. It was at least part of the reason they got involved in the Crimean War and in multiple, in, you know, the Opium Wars. <laughs> And Britain interfered in Latin America a lot throughout the 19th century. They were always poking their fingers in there and causing trouble. Britain was... America is the one that interfered in Latin America throughout most of the 20th century. Britain was the one interfering in the 19th. So it wasn't hard to look back and see the hand of big bad evil Britain behind the Triple Alliance, using Brazil and Argentina as their puppets to destroy the socialist experiment in Paraguay and force its doors open to foreign capital. There is this, you know, trend where there's only one country in South America that refused to bow down to British capital, and that was Paraguay. So Britain organized a coalition to destroy the last holdout against capitalist influence. That's the, that's the saying. The third element of the revisionist interpretation is 
the Paraguayan War as a deliberate war of genocide by the Allies. This isn't always an element, but it's usually a Marxism plus, it's usually evil capitalism plus evil Britain, but this is a common element, especially in the last few decades. A lot of people believe it. It's, um, it's very closely linked to the more modern interpretations of colonialism and imperialism and a looser use of the word genocide. <laughs> this viewpoint is expressed very openly in uh, Genocidio Americano by Julio Jose Chavinato, Chavinato, published in 2011. This is published in 2011. It's a great book cover. Like the cover, the letters are literally dripping with blood. American genocide. This interpretation claims not only that the Triple Alliance fought Paraguay at the behest of British capital, but that they openly pursued a policy of ethnic cleansing of the Paraguayan people. There is also a racial context to this, since the Paraguayans were mostly mestizo, the unique Hispano-Guarani mixture that no other country in Latin America had. So it's not just a capitalist war, it's also a colonialist, imperialist war, a race war. So this interpretation in general, the combination of the Marxist viewpoint, the anti-British viewpoint, and the uh, racial viewpoint, the genocide viewpoint, it's very current. It's very, hmm, it's very trendy, very popular on the left side of the political spectrum. It makes a lot of sense if you see histor history through a Marxist perspective. Of course capitalism is behind it. Capitalism is behind everything. Of course the British are behind it. The CIA isn't around to blame. They're the next best, best thing. The British always make good villains. But the revisionist interpretation has almost no evidence backing it up. It's lacking that very simple fact that no evidence corroborates any of this. And there's a lot of evidence against it. It's another yarn on the bulletin board conspiracist theory of history that doesn't actually hold up under scrutiny. There are lots of things you can blame on the British, lots of things you can blame on capitalism, lots of things you can blame on colonialism and racism, and I think the term genocide is often used too sparingly, as in genocide is more common in history than people want to believe. But the Paraguayan War is not one of them. First of all, Paraguay was not a Marxist experiment. If anyone was truly revolutionary and egalitarian in its history, it was Francia. Francia did have an egalitarian nationalist uh, purifying vision. He wanted to create a, you know, mixed race republic in the heart of South America. But he was much more inspired by Rousseau and Napoleon and the French Revolution than anything really Marxist. He was very, uh, he was a highly authoritarian, but he was very enlightenment based, not Marxism socialism based. In contrast, the Lopez's, both father and son, were the archetype of the corrupt Latin American dictator. Their high degree of state control was unusual in Latin America, but that wasn't because they were doing socialism. It was because Paraguay was small, homogenous, and Francia had already killed all the other institutional rivals for power anyway. Unlike in any other Latin American country, there was the army wasn't a threat, the church wasn't a threat, the landed elite weren't a threat because Francia had gotten rid of those guys. So there was nothing stopping a totalizing centralist authoritarian um, dictator from taking power and ruling basically unchecked. If Paraguay resembles any socialist experiment with its peasant economy and destruction of the elite and cults of personality, it comes closer to Pol Pot's Cambodia or North Korea under the Kims, neither of which I would consider a socialist success. 
But none of Paraguay's three pre-war dictators set out to create socialism. Whatever Paraguay was, which is a good freaking question, it wasn't Marxist. Not even remotely. <laughs> um, especially, you can look at the Lopez and say, well, it was all under state control. No, it wasn't state control. It was Lopez's personal control. It was a personalist state. He owned these things directly. He had slaves on his personally owned plantations. It wasn't like the state didn't seize these properties. Lopez seized these properties. Second, okay, the British. I alluded a couple of times in the series to various British diplomats meeting with members of the Triple Alliance before the war began. The revisionist interpretation of the war has the British colluding to destroy Paraguay and using Brazil and Argentina as, like, their hitmen to do it. This ignores one big factor. Britain was absolutely opposed to this war from the get-go. They didn't want any war in the La Plata region. It was bad for business. Plus, Lopez held a bunch of their foreign nationals hostage, so yeah, maybe they weren't too thrilled with him, but it was Britain who kept chewing the Triple Alliance out for their crazy war aims. Britain who was like, you guys are nuts, stop, this is bullcrap, stop this war. Britain kept trying to negotiate peace. Shoot, the 1867 peace proposal, the one that almost ended the war, was a British proposal. Literally, everyone involved in this conflict was way more enthusiastic about the war than Britain was. <laughs> you would have to believe the British, despite being the most prominent force trying to end the war, were secretly instigating it and trying to continue it. And that Paraguay and the Triple Alliance, who repeatedly chose to fight the war to the finish instead of making peace, were the victims of the British puppet master. The reason the British were meeting with the Allies before the war was that they were trying to defuse the Uruguay crisis through a compromise before it led to a war. Britain doesn't want a war in La Plata. They want their trade to continue unmolested in La Plata. The, the British failed to make that compromise, but those meetings spawned this whole theory like, oh, was that where the British told the Allies to destroy Paraguay, etc. But again, never supported by a single shred of evidence. There's, never, there's not a single bit of evidence pointing to the British setting the rest of South America on Paraguay. If there's one thing that the revisionist viewpoint constantly lacks, it's evidence. Finally, was the Paraguayan war genocidal? No. Did most Paraguayans die? Yes. Were the Allies quite brutal in the later stages of the war? Yes. A lot of the genocide argument is tied to the Paraguayan nationalist viewpoint, which still claims that the war was waged to destroy Paraguay. And as we've seen, this is not quite true. Paraguay Mr. Magooed their way into this war and just, you know, no one was worried about Paraguay before they attacked two larger countries. The Allies might have wanted to end the threat posed by the Paraguayan state, but the war was never intended to destroy the Paraguayan people, in whole or in part. That was never the motivation of the war. That was not a deliberate policy by any state. And intent is the key ingredient. The Polish lawyer Rafael Lemkin coined the phrase genocide in 1943 to describe what happened in Armenia in the 1920s, Ukraine in the 1930s, and the Holocaust in the 1940s. Those are the three uh, type-defining cases of genocide. Armenia, 1920s, Ukraine, 1930s, Holocaust, 1940s. And all three of those have intent, as in Lemkin's interpretation, as the core motivator. The official definition, as defined by Lemkin and the United Nations, is, quote, 
acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. And you can see, if you apply this to lots of things, you can see that genocide is actually not uncommon sometimes in the most in the recent in recent centuries. Not uncommon now. So again, did most Paraguayans die? Yes. Did the Allies behave brutally? Yes. The Allies caused a significant number of Paraguayan deaths through the bad behavior of their troops. But this is a very common feature of war in general, not necessarily genocide. If every killing of prisoners or burning of crops amounted to genocide, then the war would lose all meaning, and the Paraguayans did the same thing. They killed prisoners. Quite often, Allied prisoners were executed. They burned crops during their invasion of Mato Grosso. Were they trying to genocide the Brazilians? No. They were committing war crimes, but it's not the same as genocide. If every war is a genocide, then there is no word for a deliberate, intentional destruction of a culture, a population, a people. There's a reason that the American genocide interpretation requires enormous stretching of the truth, lots of invented motivations and supposed events that didn't actually happen. This includes things like the Marquis of Caxias dumping cholera-infected bodies in the water to spread the disease to Paraguay. This is made up. Nothing the Allies did in the Paraguayan War amounted to genocide. If most of Paraguay did die in the war, that is not the same thing. The same way that the United States was not trying to commit genocide on Japan by their, with their bombing, including the atomic bombing. They were not trying to destroy Japan as a people. They wanted to end the war. As, and if that required extreme brutality, extreme brutality would be used. The, the large Paraguayan death toll is the result of what we discussed. Total mobilization, epidemic disease, malnutrition, deprivation, hideous casualties in battle, execution, state terror, and Lopez's callous disregard for the lives of his people. Allied war crimes do not really move the needle on the Paraguayan death toll the way all the rest of those do. It is highly likely that Lopez himself killed more Paraguayan civilians than the Allies did. The conditions of the war, the unique level of Paraguayan centralization and mobilization and commitment to total war, was what produced this death rate. Almost no other nation on earth in the 19th century could exercise such complete control, demand such enormous sacrifices from its people. So no, this was not a capitalist war, not a British-inspired war, not a genocidal war. The Paraguayan War was a conflict that resulted from an unstable post-colonial status quo, border disputes, the rivalry between Brazil and Argentina over La Plata, internal domestic problems, and most of all, nationalism. National pride, honor, ego, ambition, and competing nation-building products between the nascent state entities of La Plata. This is the modern interpretation. Ever since the 1990s, most Objective academic historians have based their arguments for the Paraguayan War. It was a national war. It was a product of these nations that were almost inchoate coming out of the Spanish colonial period and trying to discover their identities in the process that led them to conflict with each other. You can easily blame colonialism and its legacy, but it was the after effect of the old Spanish and Portuguese colonialisms, not a new project by the West or by the La Plata powers. These were the driving factors, honor, ego, national pride, national ambition, nationalism in general. That was the driving factor every turn of the war, what started it and what kept it going. Paraguay and Lopez were most responsible for the war by far, 
but Brazil and Argentina were both also responsible for continuing the war long past the point it made any sense. But the revisionist interpretation is still very common in 21st century Latin America and in lefty spaces worldwide. It was the Soviet Union's official line in its historical writing about South America. But it's also very convenient for when Latin Americans want to feel a sense of regional continental identity against outside powers. It's convenient when Brazilians or Argentinians feel guilty about the war. They can say, oh, we didn't do that. It was the British that made us do that. They tricked us into it. It fits in with modern notions of Latin America as being victimized by the global north, a not unjustified interpretation. <laughs> and it fits in with other meta-narratives about history. If you see all history in terms of capitalism versus socialism, or of good guy not non-Western powers versus big bad guy Western powers, or especially if you believe that shadowy globalist forces are the great villains of human history— and yes, there are certain interpretations of this war that get into Freemasonry or the Illuminati, etc. So the revisionist view on the Paraguayan War feeds easily into this conspiracy stew that makes up most of the internet these days. These are convenient narratives. People don't like it because they think it's true. They think it's true because they like it. It fits their priors. But most serious historians of this war do not hold to the traditional nationalist or revisionist interpretations. These are the modern historians I talked about. Uh, Thomas Wiggum, Chris Lukers, Pelham Box, Ephraim Cardozo, John Hoyt Williams, Hendrik Cry, and Francisco Dorotioto all see the war as the complex, multifaceted conflict that I have tried to represent in this series, with its main starting motivators being nationalism and personalist politics. So I drew on those guys, on their English language modern histories of this conflict. So that's the, that's the historiography of the Paraguayan War. That's what historians have, how, how people have seen and interpreted it since it ended. So what did I read for this series and what should you read if you want to know more? Okay, so you want to read a book about the Paraguayan War. Good luck. There are three really good historical books in English, and none of them is easy to get a hold of. <laughs> First, you have Charles J. Kalinske's Independence or Death, The Story of the Paraguayan War, published in 1965, one volume, University of Florida Press. This book was a nightmare to find. It's been out of print forever. Libraries do not have a copy. It's not digitized. It's not online. The copies I saw for sale were like $100. I finally found one copy going for $30 and snagged it. Bright red cover. Within two days, the spine had fallen off because it was so old. There was notes scrawled in there from somebody who owned it in the 1960s. They had very bad handwriting. Um... So now there's this weird misshapen red lump of useless knowledge sitting in my office. There's also a book that I can't resell anymore. The misshapen red lump is me. But Kalinsky's book is good if you can find a copy. It's not incredibly rigorous history, but has lots of the fun anecdotes and personalities and flavor I love to put in my series so much. Gave me a lot of flavor for this series. It's a good read. Good luck finding it. Second big source was Christopher Lukers, To the Bitter End, Paraguay and the War of the Triple Alliance, 2002 from Greenwood Press. This is probably the best one-volume book on the war, very military history-focused. You won't get a lot of the diplomacy or politics or economics from this book. It's relatively short. Again, it was a nightmare to find it. I had to get it on interlibrary loan. 
any copy you find online is $100. <laughs> but if you want the best quick read on this conflict and you can get it, that's it. The third big source is Thomas Wiggum's massive two-parter. The Paraguayan War, Volume 1, Causes an Early Conflict, published 2002, and The Road to Armageddon, Paraguay versus the Triple Alliance, 1866-70, published in 2017. Wiggum is the doyen of Paraguayan war historians. He's the only English-language uh, historian who really is an expert in this war. And this, his two volumes are the most complete English-language history of the war. Wiggum has written a three-volume history in Spanish. These two volumes are extremely academically rigorous. It's got all sorts of amazing detail, all the politics and economics. And these are big books. Not for the casual reader. They're also the easiest to get a hold of. They're still very much in print. You can get them online or maybe in some of the better university libraries. I think they're actually open access on the author's website. Like, he really wants people to read his books. He's not even trying to sell them anymore. Uh, it's very easy to get a hold of them on PDF if you want to read them that way. Uh, I use these books extensively along with some other smaller books, articles, etc. If you do pick up Wiggum's book, do him a favor. Give him some money. He's the only guy working on this war. Um, give, actually pay for his book. I did. I paid for both volumes. Um, but I used all these books extensively along with some other smaller books and articles and etc. There are not a lot of English language sources on this war. It's extremely forgotten. Needs a lot more analysis from academic historians. This is a massive conflict. So the fact that I can only come up with three full-fledged English language histories is a massive blind spot in military historical research. Someone needs to work on that. Hmm. Not me, but someone. <laughs> someone who reads Portuguese, because <laughs> I don't. But if you're just looking for some entertaining books, some, you know, I want to learn more about this war, but I don't want to read the huge histories, those are easier to find. For one thing, there are a bunch of memoirs. George Thompson, George Masterman, British observer and explorer Richard Burton, uh, American diplomats Charles Washburn and Martin McMahon. All their memoirs are very easily available. On Kindle, on Amazon... And the e-books are often very cheap. Uh, Thomas Thompson's memoir is 99 cents or something like that. And this that is the eyewitness account of Lopez's chief military engineer. These are good reads. They're also incredibly biased and self-serving. You cannot trust half of what these guys say. And you really can't trust Thompson when it comes to Lopez's atrocities and purges. He has a very, you know, oh my goodness, I didn't know about any of that kind of attitude. So take all these guys with a grain of salt. Other memoirs that have not been published in English include Juan Centurion's memoir and Dionisio Cerquieras. Uh, any Spanish or Portuguese speakers listening in might find them to be a good read if you can get a hold of them. There are also loads of books about arguably the most famous figure of the war, Eliza Lynch. And again, most of them are biased. My favorite is Nigel Cawthorn's Empress of South America, which makes Eliza out to be so cartoonishly evil. <laughs> like, like it's one of those books that tries to blame Eliza for the entire war because she was a greedy, evil, succubus, Lady Macbeth-type figure, and poor Solano Lopez was just putty in her wicked hands. It honestly sounds like she's Nigel Cawthorn's ex. That's how he talks about her. Um... Magic Hawthorne's not a really uh, credentialed historian anyway. He writes a lot of... It sounds like something that's right out of the British tabloids. Uh, if you want an actually good take, look up the literary biography The Shadows of Eliza Lynch by Sean Rees, or the very well-researched Eliza Lynch, Queen of Paraguay by Michael Lillis and Ronan Fanning. 
There are also tons of novels, plays, an opera, a ballet, a biographical film from 2013 based on the Lillis Fanning book. A novel I recommend is Lily Tuck's The News from Paraguay, which won the National Book Award in 2004. It is an almost dreamlike pastiche of scenes from the life of Eliza and Solano Lopez, but a compelling novel nonetheless. All right, so that about wraps up the reading list. Okay, let's move on to the cutting room floor. What did I leave out of this series or wish I'd talked about more? For starters, I always kick these series off by writing like a million words of context, then paring it down to bare bones. There was a lot of stuff I left out from part one about Brazilian and Argentine politics, about pre-independence Paraguay and Uruguay, etc. Especially Argentina, that was just a freaking ruckus for decades. And there were all these minor border clashes with Paraguay and all these back and forth treaties and all these other civil wars that Paraguay semi-sucked into sometimes. I had a whole section about the Platine War of 1852 and the removal of Rosas and multiple people like doing cameos who have big parts later on in the story. But that section of context was already long enough. Guys, I do this all the time. <laughs> I write this huge section on something and I'm like, well, this is all interesting, but I have to actually talk about the Paraguayan War in this episode. So this is 5,000 words. Now it's 1,000 words. The version you guys get is always the short version, and it's already long enough. So yeah, I pared down the background and context to a minimum. I probably left out some stuff that a Paraguayan and Argentine listener might have, like, hey, why didn't you mention this? I didn't have time. Uh, when it comes to the actual war, I could have talked a lot more about each of these battles, especially in the last episode where it's just like battle, 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 battle. There are so many great stories and moments and viewpoints to talk about from each of these big battles, but you know, just didn't have room or time, and I glossed over or outright didn't mention a good dozen minor battles that weren't really that important, they just would have taken up airtime. I did not include every small battle in this war. <laughs> Anyone who knows a lot about this war, probably not many of you, well, note that some battles that are treated as big deals in most of the histories, like the Battle of Mbutui in 1865 or Yataiti Kora in 1866, I basically mentioned them and moved on. And there were several small subsidiary campaigns I didn't get too deep into. Operations in southeast Paraguay around Encarnacion, no, no big battles but a bunch of small skirmishes. Or the Guerrilla War in Corrientes province throughout 1865, or the last stages of the Mato Grosso campaign in 1867 and 1868 after the retreat from Laguna. None of these was amazingly important. None of these was really impactful on the course of the war. I didn't really talk about them. They're not really that important, but I am mentioning them here just so you, you know, the, the aggressive Paraguayan war nerd who listens to my you know, podcast, bro, same, doesn't come after me for not mentioning them. I could have discussed the course of the Uruguayan War, the Brazilian invasion of, of Uruguay in 1864. I could have discussed that a lot more. There was a major battle at Paysandu in 1865 when the Brazilians and Flores' insurgents executed a bunch of prisoners that ended up radicalizing a lot of the Argentine Federalists and was a huge propaganda point for the Paraguayans throughout the war, but I just did not have time to delve into it. Uh, Paysandu was one of those things that comes up a lot in the sources and the documents, but I didn't have time to explain why it was important. Um, I would have liked the chance to dig into some of these historical figures more. We spent more than enough time with Lopez and Eliza Lynch, but compared to the, you know, 
character and the depth I give to so many other historical figures in my in my series and stuff, I didn't give enough depth, I don't think, to people like Jose Diaz or the Paraguayan liberals or or Mitre or Flores or Urquiza or Osorio or even Casillas. They all have like a dozen fun little anecdotes and tidbits I just didn't have room to include. Whether it's Jose Diaz being unabashedly racist, Flores doing something stupid, Osorio doing something awesome, or Casillas displaying the only sources of common sense in this war. Luckily, we are getting a lot more Pedro II in my upcoming short round about Pedro, but I can't do a short round about everyone. There were also major politicians and figures I left out. There's already a lot of characters in the story. I kept them to, I, I try to keep names to a minimum, just so that people don't get confused. This is the other guy named Francisco. <laughs> I didn't drop a lot of names in Brazilian or Argentine internal politics, and I glossed over a lot of the Uruguayan Civil War leaders and factions. It would just be a list of names that never showed up again for the rest of the series. One big figure I did not mention at all was Jose Artigas, the Uruguayan founding father, who had a huge impact in Argentina and Paraguay too, but was long dead by the time of the Paraguayan War, so I just never brought him up. There are like a dozen Brazilian and Argentine generals who were in a bunch of battles that I just never mentioned, notably uh, Emilio Mitre, Bartolome Mitre's brother, who was one of Argentina's top generals down to the very last campaigns of the war. <laughs> I just never thought to bring him up. Oops. Then there are a bunch of thematic things that I either wish I had more time for or just didn't dig into at all. One was religion, the place of the Catholic Church in this war. I didn't really touch on, the, on that because all parties involved were Catholic, it didn't create much of an interesting contrast, but religion played a big part in sustaining the collective war efforts, especially in Paraguay. By the later part of the war, people in Paraguay were reporting miracles in various shrines and churches as symbols that God still wanted their nation to fight on, and Lopez endorsed and amplified these miracles to rally support for the cause. I also didn't give gender its full treatment, and not just women. I got the ladies in there when I could, but aside from the camp followers and the prominence of Paraguayan women in the economy and the historical sources don't have a huge amount to say about women in the Paraguayan War. I could have done a Women in the Paraguayan War episode, but it would have just been Eliza Lynch, so I did that. I scrounged up and utilized what I could, but much like in the Imjin War, there are basically no female writings from this war. Like, there's not a lot of diaries floating around of women combatants in this war, so I had to make do. But I also think this is a very good argument to make, even though I didn't talk about the women much and I wish I had more to work with when it came to them, there's a very good argument to make about masculinity in this war. How Latin American machismo, concepts of honor and pride and paternalism, weren't just important for how the war started, but also how leaders and soldiers behaved. There's a constant theme of this war is unreasonable, almost stupid courage, especially performative courage. Whether it's Diaz taunting an ironclad and getting his leg blown off, or Osorio riding around like a maniac in every battle and getting his jaw shot off. Then there is Lopez asserting his masculinity through overt displays of power and sexuality, which often influence the decision he made. Like refusing to admit he was wrong because it would dent his sense of masculine power and ego. When you compare this to the American Civil War, there is masculinity at work there too in how soldiers and leaders behave, 
but there are very different kinds of male behavior, different flavors of masculinity, including toxic masculinity, but not all masculinity is toxic, different ideas of what it means to be a man at work, and that trickles down to how these armies behaved on the battlefield. Culture affects the way people fight their wars. Then there's race. Well, like I said, the Paraguayan War was not caused by racism. Race colored and shaped the way people at the time viewed the conflict. Both sides had a highly racialized view of each other. Paraguayan propaganda and writings had a dripping, almost seething hatred and fear of the Brazilians. The Cambaes, the Macacos, the Blacks. Even if like half the Brazilian army and almost all its officers were Portuguese-descended whites, you'll still see racialized depictions of the lustful Negro in modern Paraguayan works about this conflict. But the Allies tended to see the Paraguayans as Indians because of the Hispano-Guarani mix. They were uncivilized savages ruled by a mixed-blood dictator in the jungles. The Brazilians made a lot of this in their propaganda, and especially the Argentines too, who were super proud of their white progressive civilization versus the jungle barbarism of the Paraguayans. Lots of the Brazilian battle paintings of this war, very famous paintings of Ave and Acosta Nu, depict the mostly white Brazilians in clean uniforms fighting off a horde of pathetic native savages. Like seriously, they paint the Paraguayans as freaking stereotypical Disney Peter Pan red-faced Indians. Highly unrealistic, like they don't look like this at all, this is not what the battle looked like, but it's also a statement. Look, this is civilization conquering the barbarians. This is white, settler South America dominating the mixed-race savages of the interior. Not a lot of black soldiers in the Brazilian paintings. This viewpoint, uh, this racial viewpoint, did not seriously influence the policies or strategies of the Triple Alliance. They knew full well that they were dealing with a dangerous and sophisticated enemy, but there was a racialized context to how the nations viewed this entire war, which may explain a lot of how brutal it became in its later stages. I did not discuss indigenous peoples much and their impact on the war. They were usually on the fringes of the war, though Paraguay did start to pull natives out of the forests and conscript them into the ranks later on, and native peoples played a big role in parts of the Mato Grosso campaign. And when Argentina and Paraguay had to strip their frontiers of troops to send to the front, uh, this opened the door for lots more indigenous raids into the settled areas of their respective countries. A minor but real problem. But most of the indigenous tribes still hanging out in the interior of South America looked at this whole mess and said, you know what, I'm going to stay away from that, and good on them. Finally, I had to cut a lot from the last episode about the after-effects of the war in all four nations, especially Paraguay. I didn't really get the chance to dig into Brazil's memory of the war. The last episode was already longer than my limits, so, you know, how long did you want it to be? (laughs) There are monuments and place names and emblems all over Brazil today to commemorate the Paraguayan War. It was the big military victory of their history. It is equivalent to their American Civil War or World War II. Although Brazil did fight in World War II, little known fact, but maybe I'll talk about that some other day. There's an entire suburb of Rio, of Rio named Duque de Caxias, and an enormous equestrian statue of Caxias in the town square of Sao Paulo. His name is often a byword for the loyal, law-abiding citizen. Like, like, 
he's he's as loyal, he's as upright as Cassius, and his uh his body lies in a massive pantheon in Rio de Janeiro to this day. He is the Brazilian war hero, their model soldier. There's a reason I compared him to George Washington. But the war has become very controversial in Brazilian society in the last 40-50 years, especially thanks to that revisionist interpretation. Brazilian conservatives still see the war through the traditional interpretation as a patriotic triumph for their nation. Brazilian leftists view it as a war for capitalism and genocide. You can see this divide in how different political factions view the Duke of Caxias. Was he a glorious soldier fighting for a righteous cause, or a conservative slave owner who sacrificed his soldiers in a pointless war? Are those mutually exclusive? In 1988, during celebrations of the anniversary of emancipation, there was a big controversy when there was a parade going on in front of the Duke's Pantheon, and the Brazilian police and the Brazilian army kept prominent black leaders from marching past the Duke's Pantheon. These groups had been protesting Caxias' legacy and accused him of using black soldiers as cannon fodder during the war, which they interpreted as a form of genocide. That whole American genocide interpretation holds a lot of currency in Brazil, still very divided on the issues of race. So, okay, that wraps up the cutting room floor. That's the stuff I didn't have room to include in the actual series, just so you know. Now, if you're still with me by this point, let's move on to my final thoughts and ramblings about this war. Let's kick off with some final military analysis. I said in part two that none of these militaries was very good, and I think that holds up. Their overall level of military effectiveness was just not high. This wasn't their fault. They weren't stupid. They just didn't have the military institutions, the professional training, the the broad base of education, the stuff that makes a military, a society, well-equipped to make a large, competent military. Their tactics were pretty bad, command and control was iffy, very few of the leaders really knew what they were doing, uh, several levels below either side of the American Civil War. At least most Civil War officers tried to read military tactical manuals and learn things. Lots of Paraguayan war officers didn't even do that. Cassius comes along and takes command in 1866 and is like, hey, you guys need to read this manual I wrote for you. And everybody's like, holy crap, this guy's a genius. No, that's just very basic stuff, and only Cassius was doing it. Professional officer corps. None of these nations except Brazil had a professional officer corps. And even Brazil's professionals were very diluted by the huge flood of volunteers and conscripts coming in. Like, yeah, you have a professional officer corps, but those guys are a minority of your officers by a certain point in the war. There's also a huge belief in courage over training. And this tended to be a Latin American thing in the 19th century. Like, you know, that's, that's, it's that machismo coming back. It's that bravado. It's, you know, stand, standing in place like a disciplined soldier is foolish. We should be charging gloriously into battle. They always do this. Um, yeah, and look, only the Brazilians had a real officer corps worth a damn, and look what that got them. Those guys overthrew the empire. There's a reason that uh, Latin American countries often see their militaries as more of a threat to the people in the country than to any outside power. (laughs) Tactically, in this war, both sides were very unimaginative. Not much to see here. We sure do love our frontal attacks and bonsai cavalry charges and sending long lines of infantry to smash into each other. They don't even really stand and do a lot of volley fire at each other most of the time. They're just like, 
let's go straight to melee. Modern rifles and artillery only helped the Allies so much when they didn't update their tactics to accommodate them. Battles like Tuyuti and Bokeron and Kurupaiti, stupid, pointless meat grinders caused by a broken chain of command and idiot tactics. Guys, just charge the enemy defenses over and over. It'll definitely work next time. We don't need to change anything. This is not World War I. In World War I, they kept changing things. It just didn't work. These guys aren't changing anything with their tactics half the time. Most leaders in this war were very brave. Extremely brave. No one can deny that. But not very skilled. Very brave, but bad at basic tactics and warfighting skills is the running theme of this war. Where we get lots of welcome to jackass moments. When someone usually the Paraguayans, try something that is obviously not going to work and it doesn't work. The suicide canoes come to mind. But then you have idiots like Flores, who does one good thing in this entire war at the Battle of Yate and spends the rest of the conflict just sending his troops charging into battle for no reason. Flores was basically the Leroy Jenkins of the Allied side. Then you have Mitre. Oh, Bartolome Mitre, you frustrated me so much in this war. Clearly extremely smart, great politician, wrangled the alliance together, trained the army, organized its logistics. But when he actually had to take that army on campaign, he had no idea what to do. He was weak and indecisive and let his subordinates run over him all the time because he was too afraid to tell them no because it might endanger the alliance. Mitre's, not Mitre's bad decisions, but his inability to make a decision and allowing his subordinates to go off on their merry way, this was what led to the disasters in the funnel of death and at Kurapaiti. His lack of control, his, his lack of assertive leadership. Mitre just did not have what it took to be the supreme allied commander. He missed a dozen chances to end the war early, defeat the Paraguayan army, because he constantly choked up and hesitated when seizing the moment was necessary. He was too cautious, too hesitant, never willing to strike when the iron was hot. His unwillingness to take risks that might kill a few hundred men ended up costing the lives of thousands. When something needed to be done now, Mitre would do it next week, when it was too late. The thing about Mitre he was a politician. He was a soldier, but he was a politician first. And like lots of politicians, he was he, he liked to wait on events. He liked to observe and step back and wait. He was an opportunist. But he, this meant, made him very gun-shy, very unwilling to make a bold stroke. He always reacted. He never acted. He was always playing, you know, putting out the fires rather than starting fires of his own. Mitre lacked what Clausewitz saw was the quality of a great commander, the coup d'oeil, the ability to grasp the situation, to see things at a glance, do what needed to be done in the moment of crisis. Mitre deserves a lot of credit for bringing the alliance together, maintaining it, organizing and supplying it. Those were necessary to win the war, but on their own they couldn't. Only decisive leadership with a clear-sighted goal and strategy, without like the, you know, generalship by committee that Mitre was practicing, only a cl one leader with one goal and one objective and one strategy could defeat the Paraguayan army and win the war. For that, the Allies needed the Duke of Caxias. Caxias was clearly the best commander in the war, and he's close to my list of greatest commanders in history. 
Not only did he rebuild the army after its demoralizing defeats of 1866, but he executed two masterful operations to defeat Lopez's army. The first in 1867-68 when he encircled and captured Humaita. The second in December 1868 when he outflanked Lopez's line of the Picasiri through a bold stroke and shattered the Paraguayan army in the three battles of the Desembrada, the December campaign. Casillas was bamfing his way through the December campaign in, that, in the first part of that last episode. In contrast to the disjointed, half-hearted campaigns everyone else fought in this war, these campaigns were downright professional, brilliant operations, worthy of study in military academies, especially the Desembrada. Casillas' skills in all levels of strategy, operations, and tactics, his standards, his discipline, his attention to the condition of his men and the care and upkeep of his army and his personal personal leadership at moments of crisis like the Itotoro bridge and ave make him in my eyes a great general but Casillas does lose points in a few key areas first he had a limited conventional military view of the conflict which is what led him to allow lopez to escape at lomas valentinas Casillas believed that capturing lopez wasn't really necessary that when he captured Humaita, captured Asuncion, and destroyed the Paraguayan army, the war was over. He legitimately said openly, you know, I've captured the capital, destroyed the army, the war's over. Normally it would have been. In any normal country, that probably would have been the end of it. But Lopez wasn't a normal leader, and Paraguay wasn't a normal country. Casillas never quite grasped this. But then again, most of the Allied leaders didn't either. Second, Casillas believed that in wartime, the army had to call the shots, not the politicians. This opened the door for the army to assume an outsized position in the Brazilian Empire, and the junior officers he led to victory in Paraguay eventually overthrew the empire he had served all his life. Casillas was dead by then, but he had always been absolutely faithful to Pedro II, and his successors weren't. He opened the door, thinking that only he was going to be the one to to walk through it, but other people walked through it too. He could trust himself, but he couldn't trust them. This is where Casillas was unlike George Washington in one of the most important ways that mattered. He placed military priorities above political ones, which led to the military gaining political power. Washington famously refused to do this, such as in the Newburgh Conspiracy of 1783, when he defused the military trying to gain political power. Casillas' failure to keep his army in its place led to the destruction of the system he had fought to uphold. This was a much larger failure than any purely military defeat. He who fights monsters and all that. So these were the major allied leaders. Below them were a few talented mid-rank commanders. Uh, Osorio was excellent. Osorio was also tactically proficient, which is a rarity in this war. Uh, Mena Barreto was great. Uh, General Venceslao Palnero for the Argentines was pretty decent. Uh, Gaston the Comte de U was competent, but utterly failed to restrain his soldiers during the 1869 campaign. Their bona fide war crimes were a huge black mark on an otherwise successful career. The Most of the rest of the Allied generals were just a bunch of dudes, all courage, no brains. Venancio Flores was the champion of these guys. The Brazilians did have a decent little cadre of... Uh, field-grade and company-grade officers who did stellar work in the campaign. Brazilian small unit leadership is always pretty, and a pretty 
decent level compared to everyone else's. But most of the generals sucked. <laughs> um, Paraguayan leadership was pretty freaking bad as well. All courage, no brains was basically the motto of their officer corps. For instance, Jose Diaz, a major force in all the big battles of 1866. You know, every battle I talked about in part three, he shows up. And he gets credit for the big victory at Curupaiti. But he was doing the same thing there as he did in all the battles. Rallying, inspiring his men, leading them from the front, and nothing else. As inspirational and courageous as he was, Jose Diaz did not have two brain cells to rub together. His favorite tactic was to beat his head into a brick wall, which he did at Estero Bayaco in 2UT. It didn't matter that he was leading them from the front. You know, he was risking it too, but that was... It's just extraordinarily stupid tactics. The Leroy Jenkins of the Paraguayan army. He inspired his men right into the mouth of Colonel Maillet's artillery at the trench. Not a freaking success story. Diaz was basically the archetype, the, uh, the valedictorian of the whole Paraguayan officer corps. Incredible courage, not an ounce of common sense. Ironically, the creative ingenious officer on the Paraguayan side, the Paraguay's really interesting general, the guy with all the clever ideas and cool tricks, was Francisco Solano Lopez. I have seen arguments that Lopez was a good general, and he does have some qualities of good generalship. Lopez was an innovative commander. He knew how to rally and motivate his soldiers, who displayed an incredible commitment to him. He was very determined. His constant attacks and raids and ambushes demoralized his opponents and kept them on their toes. He was aggressive. He always seized the initiative. He was a very active and dangerous opponent sometimes. He believed in modern weaponry and new inventions, and he used them whenever he got the chance. He was incredibly resilient, constantly managing to rebuild his army every time it was shattered, and he was a tenacious defender. In other contexts, his dedication and determination against the odds might have been seen as admirable. Many Paraguayan historians still admire him for these qualities. So my assessment is that Lopez, yes, had a lot of talents and skills that could have made him a successful general. If it wasn't for his character. Character matters. It matters immensely. And it was Lopez's ultimate downfall as a general. His ego, his delusions of grandeur, his micromanagement, his casual cruelty, his lack of trust in any of his subordinates, his constant underestimation of his opponent, his narcissistic obsession with destiny and belief that will could overcome resources, and his personal cowardice turned all those positives into negatives. His aggressive nature caused losses that his nation could not afford. His ego blinded him to the flaws in his plans, and no one was willing to point them out because disagreeing with Lopez got you killed. His micromanagement and lack of trust in his subordinates strapped them into rigid, inflexible plans that shattered on first contact with the enemy, like at the Riachuelo or Tuyuti. And Lopez's personal cowardice kept him too far back from the battles to make important decisions leaving his subordinates straitjacketed by his previous orders, which they couldn't violate or he'd kill them, and so they were unable to react to the enemy's actions. Lopez violated every principle of command, especially the chains of command I described back in May. Too far back to control anything, but too much of a micromanager to let his subordinates control anything. 
The result was a Paraguayan army that tended to just go on autopilot. It acted like the AI in a real-time strategy game, blindly charging into the enemy over and over and over because the, uh, the, the gamer stepped away to use the bathroom and left all his units on autopilot. Finally, Lopez's ego and overconfidence, his consistent belief that Paraguayan will would overcome all obstacles, led him to overplay his hand and underestimate the challenges he faced time and again until his nation was destroyed. He maintained this belief that will would eventually prevail in the face of all evidence from when he first picked the fight with Brazil and Argentina down to the very last battles. The decision to fight the two largest countries in South America was an unforced error on the part of Lopez. They did not attack him. They were not really threatening him. He thought they, maybe he thought they were, but it was the most disastrous series of foreign policy decisions in modern history not made by Adolf Hitler. Paraguay had no business fighting either of these countries and no interest in doing so. They had nothing to gain. Even when Lopez had a slim, slim chance for victory early on in the war, his piss-poor leadership sabotaged it. He held out for a long time, dragged the war on, did you know, did all these incredible things to prolong the war, but prolonging the war for what? Delay is only a viable military strategy if you think something's going to change. Holding out only matters if you have something to look forward to. Lopez did perceive that breaking allied will was the only way he could win but he didn't match his strategy to that his didn't match his tactics and operations to the overall strategy by the way he just constantly sacrificed his men he was going to bleed out in resources before his enemy bled out in will and he sort of made sure that happened if paraguay had a military genius a saving grace that allowed them to fight on for as long as they did it was george thompson Whenever the Allies think they're about to win the war, surprise, here's another Thompson Saturday Night Special, a fortified position that it'll be suicide to attack. What's funny is that Thompson was a railroad engineer. He was not a fortifications engineer. He just knew how to read diagrams and got a hold of some military engineering manuals to help him design the angle and shape of these defenses. And it helped that the Allies were nice enough to launch a bunch of stupid frontal attacks against most of his positions. But seriously, George Thompson's defenses probably made the war twice as long as it would have been otherwise. Some random English dude who knows how to make a really good ditch turns the Paraguayan war into the bloodbath it was. Wonder how he felt about that. I don't know. Go read his memoir. It's 99 cents on Kindle. Anyway, so that's the military leadership. What lessons can we learn from the military history of the Paraguayan war? Like the meta lessons, the big lessons about history and warfare. What are the universal things that the war can teach us? I gave an abridged version of this in the last episode, but here's where I'm just going to vent about it. Here I'm just going to ramble about it. You guys are here. You're, you're still here. I, I guess you're still listening to this. Let's go. First, terrain and how it influences strategy. There's a reason I started part one of this series with the rivers and why I called it the rivers of destiny. If you didn't notice, this war is fought on the rivers. The rivers are everything. The rivers of the La Plata Basin were critical trade routes, the lifeblood of commerce and agriculture and economics and communications and movement. They were the geography that shaped every one of these nations and how they developed, how they evolved, their futures. And they were also the key terrain of the Paraguayan War. 
Paraguayan strategy for winning the war revolved around controlling the rivers. The defeat at the Riachuelo killed any hope they had of projecting their forces down the Piranha River, which was why it was the turning point of the war. After they are defeated on the rivers, Paraguay cannot succeed in another offensive. The Allies spent three years trying to capture Humaita, which controlled the Paraguay River. It was the only way they could advance and invade Paraguay. River boats and ironclads and canoes. Controlling the river was this war. It was the entire strategic focus of this war. The rivers were most vital of all for the iron hand of logistics. We saw what happened in Mato Grosso when an army didn't have access to the rivers. Any army operating in interior South America in this age before railroads or automobiles or aircraft needed the rivers like a body needs oxygen. Cut the army away from the river and it dies. When the Allies had broken Lopez's last stronghold on the river, that is the end of any sustainable defense of Paraguay. Lopez can no longer put his thumb on Allied logistics. He is utterly cut off from transport and population centers and quick communication. After that, it is a matter of time. The rivers were the dominant terrain of the Paraguayan War. Controlling them meant the difference between victory or defeat. The rivers were why these nations evolved the way they did, why Paraguay existed the way it did, why Argentina had the control it did, why Brazil needed, why Brazil's expansion into the interior required the rivers. Understanding how geography influences history and influences military operations, it all came down to the rivers and controlling them. That was the Paraguayan War. Second big lesson, public support, especially in modern nations, is a vital component of war. Politics and war are not separate. To paraphrase Clausewitz, war is the pursuit of political objectives by other means. Your, polit your political objectives determine your military objectives. But the course of the war, the subjective feeling the war causes back home, can cause rises and dips in how much support the war has. The Allies had to stop the war for almost a year after Kurapaiti, not because they had lost the numerical or material advantage over the Paraguayans. Like I said, Kurapaiti did not objectively, fundamentally, change the balance of the war but because the defeat caused a crisis in home front morale. The objective facts on the ground hadn't changed, but the subjective feeling about the war had. And that is just as vital, just as important, as any objective hard military facts. This is similar to the American Civil War, where even when the Union was consistently winning in every other theater, every time Robert E. Lee wins a victory over a Union army, it sends morale into the gutter, even when Lee's victories aren't decisive and can't change the objective facts of the situation. The lowest point of the war for the Union was in mid-1864, when they are clearly winning on the map and by the metrics and by the charts, but they don't feel like they're winning. They're tired of the war. They want it to end. Lots of similarities between the Paraguayan War and the Civil War, especially when it comes to this relationship between battlefield victories and home front morale, even when the battlefield victories can't and don't change the course of the war. This is why I draw that contrast between resources and will, the objective facts and the subjective experience, the, um, the measurable and the immeasurable. Both factor into how a war is fought and how a war is won. The Triple Alliance's superiority in resources was never in question. Whether they could sustain their will was always in question. 
This was their weak point, their center of gravity, the determining factor in whether they won or lost the war. And that's a lesson that is very current in the present day. The United States was not defeated on the battlefield in Vietnam or in Afghanistan. As people will constantly remind us, we were defeated in the popular will. And that was a defeat. Winning the battle but losing the war is just losing the war. And the military is partially responsible for this. The military has to deliver a victory or, um, sust- or progress. They have to show that the war is being won to sustain home front morale. The military is responsible not just for winning the war on the spreadsheet, but in the hearts and minds of its own people. The perception of the war, the perception of the victory, matters just as much as the objective facts. Third big lesson. Very simple. Access to global capital, global resources, global markets is a must in modern warfare. The Allies had this, Paraguay didn't, and it was a force multiplier. Paraguay's homegrown industry accomplished miracles, but couldn't compete long term. Eventually, the Paraguayan economy was ground down until there was nothing left. We can compare this to Germany in World War I. Despite its economization and use of its resources, very efficient, The Allied blockade shut them off from the commerce of the world, especially the massive financial and material resources of the United States. Paraguay was in the same position. Isolated from global currents, they withered on the vine and died. Finally, Paraguay's place in global military history. The shape of this war and how I think it fits in with the rest of military history. Some final musings, then I'll be done. I constantly emphasize the contrast in these two sides throughout this series. Resources versus will. Centralized versus divided. A fully formed nation versus nations still in the process of forming. High morale versus low morale. Smaller numbers versus greater numbers. How the subjective experience of the war was radically different from the balance sheet. One of the big questions most folks probably have just looking at a Wikipedia summary of this war is... Why the hell did Paraguay fight all these countries, and how the hell did the war go on so long? I think I explained that pretty well. There was a huge mismatch in the resources versus will of this conflict. It's one of the reasons I think it's so fascinating. It's never There's rarely a clearer contrast between the side with all the resources and the side with all the will. Like, you know, they, you know how they say it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but it's the size of the fight in the dog? Turns out the size of the dog also really matters. But this is the largest dog with the less fo- least fight versus the smallest dog with the most fight. That is such a strange contrast to me. See, Brazil and Argentina put out a lot less proportional effort than Paraguay. But for them, the war was always controversial. Every new tax or new loan or new conscription had to be negotiated within their body politic and with the outside world. Paraguay had no such restrictions. What Lopez wanted, Lopez got. He was able to draw on much larger proportional resources than his opponents, but even their small proportions outweighed his by a long shot. There are alternative outcomes to this war where Paraguay doesn't really win, but where Brazil and Argentina decided it isn't freaking worth it. But as we talked about, sacrifices justify the cause. By the end of 1866, all those dead soldiers at Tuyuti and Boqueron and Curupaiti had become a sunk cost fallacy. It was politically unacceptable to the Allies, to Pedro or Mitre, 
that their country should sacrifice so much for a negotiated status quo peace deal, or even less than what they originally asked for. You see this all the time in war. Paraguayan War is a great example of it, but you see this all the time. As the sacrifices increase, the war aims keep pace. Nobody went into World War I imagining that it would become as massive and destructive as it was. But the more blood was spilled, the higher the stakes became. You can call a truce and say, we're good after a thousand deaths, but not after a million. Total victory, total defeat, total war is now on the table. Karl von Clausewitz describes this spiraling, escalating style of warfare, where each side has to escalate the force they use, what they're willing to commit and sacrifice, in reaction to the other side's escalation. To Clausewitz, the use of power involves two factors— the strength of available means, which can be measured objectively, and the strength of the will, which can't be. That is a direct paraphrase of, of Clausewitz. Does that sound familiar? It's resources and will. It's always Clausewitz. But wars escalate when one side finds the other too strong to overcome, and rather than deciding to make peace or call it, they ratchet up their efforts in response. This becomes a reciprocal cycle as both sides ratchet up the pressure until one side finally snaps. And if you've noticed, we saw that many times in the Paraguayan War, where both the Allies and Paraguay make conscious decisions to, instead of backing down, they ratchet up, commit more, intensify, and deepen their investment until Paraguay just runs out of gas entirely. Wars can become self-perpetuating, self-justifying the longer they go on. We've sacrificed too much to call it off because that means it was all for nothing. We have to win. Look at the Russo-Ukrainian War. That crap has been going on for almost two years by now, with terrible consequences on both sides, but neither side is ready to throw in the towel. They will both expend enormous resources for a few miles of ground, rather than concede defeat, because they have sacrificed so much by now that anything short of total victory could never justify it, would be politically and mentally unacceptable to their peoples. This is what I mean by sacrifices justifying the cause. By, because when you've sacrificed too much, you can't quit. You have to ratchet up. You have to increase the pressure. Ultimately, of course, this just means that sacrifices justify more sacrifices. I will let my blood be spilled so their blood wasn't spilled in vain. The grim, unescapable human logic of war. The sunk cost fallacy on a horrifying scale. And the Paraguayan War as a massive contrast between resources and will, show the two different ways that sides will ratchet up that pressure, doubling down on fracturing will or fracturing resources, until one side snaps. And in the last episode of this series, we saw what I mean when I say snap. The death of a nation. Wars do not have to be like this. Clausewitz contrasts this kind of war, a war of extremes, with the more limited wars of the past, and they're still limited wars to this day, uh, where, there was less em where there's less emotional investment, where kings and emperors and sultans could look at their balance sheets and their resources and say, yeah, we're not going to win this thing, let's discuss terms. Or, yeah, we're winning, but this is getting expensive. Let's take a chunk of territory and call it good. Or, yeah, we're sort of winning, but nah, this is done. 
And you still see wars like this. When there's less emotional investment, it is much easier to just cut your losses and say, oh, we don't want to do this anymore. Afghanistan. We left. If, if America had ratcheted up the pressure, if we had been willing to go up to 11 on Afghanistan, we absolutely could have won that war. But it wasn't worth it. People didn't think it was worth it. The sacrifice was not worth that cause, so we backed away and we left. If people had been convinced, if the politicians had been able to convince Americans that it was worth it, if the military had been able to offer a convincing road to victory, then maybe America would have won Afghanistan. But we didn't. That's a limited war. A war for limited, a limited war with limited means for a limited goal. But that, and that's been the case for most of history. But in the 19th century, we can see this really begin to change. We can see wars start to spiral towards extremes, this ratcheting reciprocal process. Compare the Paraguayan War to the Crimean War. At the end of that conflict, both sides sat down and hashed out terms that shifted the boundaries, limited Russia's military facilities, guaranteed certain political arrangements. Compare this to other wars a couple of decades later. In the 1860s, the Western world saw three major wars that escalated to extremes. The American Civil War, the Franco-Prussian War, and the Paraguayan War. Each of these ended not with a negotiated settlement, well, sort of, in the Franco-Prussian War, but each of these involved the victorious power literally destroying the other side's government and either re-annexing breakaway provinces like the Civil War or negotiating a peace with a replacement government. These were wars that involved capturing capital cities, annihilating armies, using the power of economics and industrial weaponry on a level that moved way past even the Crimean War. The American Civil War and the Franco-Prussian War are heavily studied as a part of this transition, not the Paraguayan War, which, like I've mentioned, is barely studied. And then in the late 1870s, early 1880s, another South American war would be waged on this scale, the War of the Pacific, which pitted Chile against Bolivia and Peru. Chile won, surprisingly, to be honest. But again, Chile invaded Peru, occupied its capital, almost destroyed its army before the government made peace. The differences between these wars and the previous era of limited wars, where Britain and France can exchange territory and sign a treaty in Paris, Treaty of Paris number 75, and call it good, the difference is nationalism. Peoples are going to war, not countries. Peoples are becoming emotionally invested in the outcome, and this gives the governments more leverage, more uh, motivation to ratchet up the pressure. Who fought the Civil War? The Union people and the Confederate people. The French people and the German people. The Paraguayan people and the Brazilian people. Not the state entities, but the nation. National ideologies, the idea that a people, not a political head or a political entity, went to war, and that there was this abstract concept called a nation that would win or lose the conflict, both opens and closes doors. People are far more willing to sacrifice for their cause than the king's cause. Under the old regimes, there was a distinct lack of public engagement with wars. That really starts to change with the American Revolution, the French Revolution, etc. One of those things that we think is very old, but isn't really where the people mobilize for the cause of the nation, where they're willing to commit for their cause, their victory. That is something very new. That is modern. 
and the means of destruction were greater. Industrial production, global finance, international arms trades allows countries to fight with far greater resources than ever before. All these factors, nationalism, the industrial revolution, global trade, all these help push wars towards extremes, making them longer, more lethal, more devastating, total. And Paraguay's embrace of total war, of total mobilization, of a nation willing to immolate itself for victory, should not be seen as abnormal. That should be seen as a sign. That was what the world was moving towards in the 20th century. Paraguay might have seemed primitive with its mud forts and its shoeless soldiers and its antiquated muskets and its canoes, but in terms of how it waged its war, Paraguay was modern. It was the most modern country in South America. It was waging a centralized, total, uh, top-down, hierarchical, nationalist war on a level that foreshadowed the 20th and 21st centuries. Paraguay might have waged the first modern total war, comparable only to the Union and Confederacy in the American Civil War in its time period, though neither of those powers committed so much, so totally, with such a massive level of centralization and economic mobilization and mass conscription and national indoctrination, and the destruction that resulted. This, to me, is what makes the Paraguayan War truly incredible, unique in modern history, and what made it so destructive, disastrous, so absolutely apocalyptic that it is still seared into the history of its continent so vividly and harshly. This was one of the first modern total wars. It should have been a warning. But no one pays attention to the Paraguayan War. No one includes it in the list of great modern wars. Very few people compare it to the other wars of its day as the emergence of a new kind of conflict. And maybe they should. Just because it occurred on the fringes doesn't mean it wasn't a signal for a new age. After all, this was a real story with real people, just as real and important for understanding modern history as the French and the Prussians, or the Union and the Confederates, or the British and the Russians. Military historians could stand to learn a lot from studying forgotten wars, wars that aren't part of the Western military canon, that don't occupy every shelf in Barnes & Noble. I think, if anything, that is my big takeaway from this war. That maybe instead of the millionth book about World War II, we could uh, ask our historians to maybe write book number four or five about the Paraguayan War. <laughs> maybe, that, maybe, uh, maybe instead of 20 books about Navy SEALs, hey, why not another book about the Battle of Tuyuti? There isn't a book about the Battle of Tuyuti. Uh, Non-Western military history is just as vital, just as important, can be just as instructive and teach as many of the same lessons as Western military history. That we can learn great lessons about warfare, history, and humanity from our unknown soldiers. Guys, I think I've talked long enough. Those are my final thoughts on the Paraguayan War series as a whole. Don't forget I have a short round coming out about Dom Pedro II and the fall of the Brazilian Empire. But after that, we are done with this time and place and on to new things. So see you in a couple weeks for that. And then we're off to East Africa, circa 1896. See you around, only here on Unknown Soldiers. 